the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Anyone who's watched the Netflix documentary, Trust No One, The Hunt for the Crypto King, gets an inside seat to a story of how a crypto multimillionaire by the name of Jerry Cotton apparently stole $250 million and then died in mysterious circumstances, or as some believe, faked his own death in India. That raises the question, how do you know whether your assets are safe in a crypto exchange? Right here in South Africa, we're a year down the road trying to sort out what went wrong at the now collapsed crypto exchange Ice Cubed. Perhaps we need to start asking whether our crypto exchanges are good custodians of our crypto assets. Well, to help us sort that out, we're joined by Vihan Olafia, digital asset lead and partner at Mazars. Vihan is fresh back from the Bitcoin conference in Miami, where I believe 35,000 people attended. Vihan, thanks for coming back on the MoneyWeb Crypto podcast. I'd like to kick off with what struck you most about the Bitcoin conference. The one thing I noticed was billionaire Peter Thiel going off on the enemies of crypto and naming names like Warren Buffett and Larry Fink, who, of course, is the CEO of BlackRock. What struck you most about the conference? Thanks, Kieran. Uh, a pleasure to be back on, on MoneyWeb Crypto with you. Uh, yes, I'm fresh back from Miami, but definitely not fresh in terms of the jet lag that I'm still battling with. Um, the conference was a real sight in terms of the magnitude of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency enthusiasts from all over the U.S. and, of course, all over the world. The conference was held in Miami, the convention center down in, in South Beach, uh, and it had five different stages. So we, we ended up running from one stage to another, trying to see as much as possible. But besides from listening to all of the speakers, another personal highlight was definitely doing all of this without wearing a mask, seeing the state of Florida abolish the requirement to wear a mask. Of course, you mentioned Peter Thiel had a very insightful discussion, which started off with a video of him in 1999 discussing the topic of mobile money to the use of mobile devices and the internet. Now, as you know, today, Peter Thiel went on to be one of the co-founders of, of PayPal. So I'm really hoping that his views on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency are as promising as the previous predictions. He did make, uh, did name and shame a couple of people calling them enemies of crypto, as you mentioned, and also compared ESG to the Chinese Communist Party, which was a bit extreme in my view. But as I mentioned, everyone has to voice their opinions. Jack Mauler, the CEO of Strike, also gave an extremely insightful and entertaining presentation as he revealed Shopify's integration with the Bitcoin network or the superior payments network, as he referred to it. He spoke about the lack of innovation and the payment sector and the introduction of the Diners card back in 1949, which he referred to as, as boomer technology, of course, making reference to the boomer generation which developed this, this payment technology of credit cards. So through the use of Shopify and, and Bitcoin second layer application, you can essentially spend your Bitcoin and pay merchants in, in fiat in a matter of seconds. Of course, uh, Saif Dean Amus, the author of the Bitcoin standard and also now the fiat standard, also had an extremely interesting presentation which also touched on energy consumption of Bitcoin. We made a fair amount of comments on on Bitcoin is being a technological advanced method of moving money over the internet. Therefore, it's expected to consume more energy. And it's quite interesting. He actually made a comparison to household product. And the same concept applies, such as washing machine and cars. Um, washing machine and cars use more energy because it's a more technological advanced compared to, to washing your clothes with your hand or, or riding a bicycle. But no one makes mention of the fact of how much energy is consumed 
on an annual basis by washing machines compared to the uh, Bitcoin network. There was also interesting panel discussions by accounting and tax advisory firms, but I'm definitely not going to bore you with that. But overall, a fantastic experience. And I'm very grateful for the hospitality of Amazon's New York office that invited us to attend the conference alongside them. It must be quite amazing to be in a conference room or a hall or a stadium, whatever it was, where you've got 35,000 people in five stages and you really are spoiled for choice, you know, where you're going to run to next to, to get the next presentation. I take it that overall the mood regarding cryptos was enthusiastic. And I know that one of the things that is coming out, some of the reports subsequent to the conference, this is getting the attention of the big money guys. And this is why Peter Thiel's um, slamming of, you know, the gerontocracy, he called it, you know, the Warren Buffetts and the Larry Finks and the people of this world who really don't understand what they're looking at. And as you've just mentioned, Mm -hmm. this technology, this blockchain technology, you know, which can settle transactions in seconds rather than the three days it currently takes on the Visa network or the five days it currently takes. This is something that they really haven't quite tried to understand and they're being a little bit dishonest about it. Am I right Mm -hmm. in saying that this was kind of the perception that was being conveyed at the conference? Yeah, to to a certain extent, yes. But also I think what people lack to understand as well is how we can utilize, of course, blockchain such as Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to be adopted in real life scenarios where exactly this element of of payments and the utilization of cryptocurrency in the payments model, how this can actually be incorporated in there to make the whole system more efficient. So of course, there are different individuals where they have the views of of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin being bad to the environment, being bad on, on the current financial system. But on the other hand, you've got a lot of enthusiasts there and also a lot of Bitcoin maximalists. So you also need to keep an open mind when listening to all of these individuals Sometimes, of course, taking what they what they're saying to heart, but also in certain circumstances, uh, take it with a little bit of, of salt. But also, what was extremely interesting, and I and I got the feeling there was a big emphasis this year on on the Bitcoin Lightning Network, which is essentially the second layer application that solves this Bitcoin scalability issue. Now, for those, of course, that don't know what the what the issues is, we refer to this as a blockchain dilemma which makes reference to the three fundamentals of any blockchain being scalability, security, decentralization. So when developing a blockchain, there's usually a trade-off between one of these three elements. And with Bitcoin's blockchain, the trade-off was scalability, which was solved then with a lightning network. So it seems like there was a big emphasis on that specifically this year. We previously spoke to you about the need for crypto exchanges having their crypto assets audited, which, of course, is something that you do at Mazars. And that was brought home to me recently when I watched the documentary on Netflix called Trust No One. And I think you've also seen it as well. It's quite a fascinating story for people who haven't watched Mm. it of a Canadian crypto exchange headed by this nerdy guy called Jerry Cotton who apparently managed to make off with $250 million. And what he was getting people to do was deposit this money, this fiat money, in his exchange. He would credit them with a certain amount of Bitcoin, but then he would remove that Bitcoin and he'd go and trade it on some other exchange. And what happened there is uh, is a little bit murky, but I don't want to you know, give away the, the, the points of the thing. I was flabbergasted mm-hmm. that people would send their money to his exchange and you know that he would create this digital entry for the customer. He'd ship his money off to another exchange and gamble with it. I, I mean, th- this is now something you've really got to start asking questions of the exchanges. How do we know that our cryptos are safe there? You know, you, you can create this fake entry every time you log onto your crypto exchange. Is it real? T- tell us what's behind this. Yeah, sure. I think I also watched the documentary. Um, I was flying out that Sunday to the U.S. and I actually watched it on Saturday. So it, it was good timing. 
And, and this is one amazing story that really intrigued me. It had twists and turns around every corner, and there's still a fair amount of unanswered questions. Now, the biggest question I was asking throughout the documentary was, was anyone looking at the on-chain data to confirm that the addresses holding the cryptocurrencies were, in fact, dormant? Now, later on in the documentary, of course, my question was answered when they discovered movement of the funds to external addresses and wallets after Cotton's death. Now, of course, this, of course, illustrates the advantage of having open distributed ledger. But with blockchain, has this element of pseudo-anonymity. So you can't really pinpoint the recipient of a specific fund off the bat. It requires some investigation work. And of course, what a lot of people do, and we've seen this in practice, is when they try to misappropriate funds, they move it to a series of public addresses and essentially end up in an exchange where there's limited KYC and AML. Now your client and, and anti-money laundering procedures, so you aren't able to link an individual with an account. But long story short, the exchange called Quadriga had issued a statement after Cotton's death that the private keys associated with the public keys had lost or had been lost as Cotton was the only person that had access to these. But as I mentioned, they found movement on the blockchain address subsequent to Cotton's death, which, which proves either that he wasn't really dead or someone else had access to the addresses holding the funds. Of course, when I refer to the public key and the private key addresses, the public key address is much like the bank account number and the private key is the pin to that bank uh, account. Mm -hmm. So, of course, just in, in layman's term for, for blockchain. So it was a real no-brainer that fraud was taking place here. Now, the this, this story of Jerry Cotton and Quadriga seems to be a classic Ponzi scheme. And like any Ponzi scheme, the enemy of a Ponzi scheme is those who wish to withdraw funds from the scheme. Now, Jerry was a bit unfortunate as the market was against him back in 2017 when we had the crash. Now, essentially, this led to individuals wanting to withdraw their funds and, and basically the whole house of cards fell in. And we saw the same happening with Bernie Madoff back in 2008 in New York and the same happening with Middle Trading International in South Africa. I think the only difference here is Bernie Madoff and Johan Steinberg she could have probably opted to, to for the option to fake their own debt and, and gotten away with that. <laughs> but I've been very, very vocal for a number of years that exchanges need to provide their customers with some form of external independent reports that will provide customers with reassurance that their funds actually exist on-chain or within a custody solution, especially in an unregulated environment. The reason I say this is it comes down to basic accounting. If you put fiat currency into an exchange or crypto into exchange, the custodian's bank balance or digital asset holdings will be debited, and of course, a corresponding liability will be raised on the balance sheet. So the risk is that the assets that act as collateral for that liability doesn't exist within a custody solution or on-chain. And the same principles apply to a custody solution that holds your cryptocurrency, let's say an exchange or investment platform that invests your cryptocurrencies for a return. But Karina, I think you, you may mention the comment that you're surprised that people will use an exchange like Kujiga to buy, sell, send, receive, and hold cryptocurrencies. But what happens every single day, or this happens every single day in South Africa, and of course all around the world. And I think a lot of investors trust these large exchanges because they believe these exchanges are too big to fail. But they have no due diligence to substantiate this in most circumstances. This is why I've been a big advocate of these independent uh, proof of reserve reports that we issue to clients operating in the crypto space in South Africa. You can go to the likes of Luno and Revex and have a look on their website because we've done these proof of reserve reports for them. And, and you can essentially verify that the cryptocurrency 
is held on the platform as we issue this on a quarterly basis. So, of course, you can see that it's either held in a custody solution on-chain and that it exceeds the liability of funds owed to customers. And customers also need to start asking these virtual asset service providers if they're being subjected to statutory orders with a credible audit firm such as Mazars performing these independent orders on the financial statements. Now, this is of course, there is, of course, another layer of complexity added to this in the instance where virtual asset service providers hold cryptocurrency on chain. And the reason I say this is the result of blockchain pseudo-anonymous characteristics again, which is why we perform extensive procedures to obtain assurance over the ownership of these exchanges and, and the platform's public key addresses. The other element is to ensure that the exchange or investment platform you're using has proper security protocols in place, such as keeping large portions of their custody funds in cold storage and not online, where there's this always ever-present risk of having that single uh, point of failure. And it's really sad to see how Cotton was able to fool all of these investors that use the platform. But I'm really hoping that people investing in cryptocurrencies today will learn from uh, those that made mistakes who invested in Quadriga. I suppose it's a fair question that when somebody is signing up with a crypto exchange, one of the questions you should ask is, do you have a proof of reserve report that I can look at? Exactly, exactly. These, of course, are becoming fairly standard now with the reputable exchanges around the world, correct? So what we've seen is from the larger exchanges, of course, in, in the US and in South Africa now, they make use of these proof of reserve reports. And for the life of me, I can't understand why there isn't more customers demanding these virtual asset service providers to issue these reports. Because at the end of the day, the individuals with the most power is going to be the consumers that require this, as opposed to a regulator incorporating this in their normal practices. From what you saw at the Miami Bitcoin conference, did did you get a sense that crypto exchanges and, in fact, any company with custody of client cryptos are now under massive pressure to have their businesses audited? There's a demand for transparency like never before. Is that correct? Yeah, I think with the documentary coming in, in to light about what happened with Kodjiga, I think with it still being fairly new, there hasn't been a lot of individuals that actually watched this or have, have wrapped their mind around it. But so as you know, cryptocurrencies allows you to, to take charge of your own money. So you can either self-custody uh, your cryptocurrency or deposit your cryptocurrency with an exchange or another custody solution. Personally, I prefer having my cryptocurrency holdings on exchange or betting platform as it alleviates some of the pressure of self-custody. But I also know the risk involved with having another entity custody my funds. I am over the advantageous position of being the auditor of the exchanges and the betting platforms that hold my cryptocurrency, but other people may not, which is why we work with these virtual asset service providers to give the general public the required assurance of these proof of reserve reports. So I'm really hoping that regulators in this space make these proof of reserve reports mandatory to protect consumers as it creates accountability as you mentioned and regular oversight and if regulations don't require then once again it comes back to what i just said is then there needs to be a demand from the consumers for their exchanges to actually issue these types of reports and and to be honest i, I can't understand why there's not a bigger emphasis on this based on the amount of of fraud and, and security hacks and, and those sort of things that we've witnessed over the last couple of years. One of the interesting things that I also noticed about Peter Thiel's speech, I mean, wow, it, it was quite a, a broadside against the traditional financial establishment. 
Uh, one of the yeah. things he said was, uh, you know, if you list your company on the stock exchange, you're effectively nationalizing your company. I, I never quite thought of it that way. But, of course, you are submitting to all kinds of regulations which uh, then are imposed upon you by the federal government. This is certainly true in the U.S. and I suppose to some extent in South Africa. I found sure. that quite a harsh, uh, harsh comment, but it certainly got me thinking, you know, and I don't know if I entirely disagree with him. Yeah, look, I think that's the thing what was great about the, the, the conference. There were a lot of opinions floating around and a lot of very strong opinions. Of course, from a regulatory point of view, I firmly believe that regulations are there and it's, it's there for the, for the common good because it makes sure that individuals operating this space are protected and, of course, they have recourse. Of course, this means that these virtual asset service providers need to jump through hoops. But... If we all were honest and operating in an honest environment, there would be no need for regulations. But unfortunately, I think the society has developed in such a way that unfortunately we need regulations, not only internationally, not only in the U.S., but in South Africa as well, to make sure that the players and customers in this space are protected and they are provided with some form of recourse if something had to go wrong. And of course, to keep these virtual asset service providers and any type of company for that matter accountable for their actions. All right, Vihan, final question here. What are some of the trends catching your eye? We're certainly seeing some interesting use cases and business concepts developing around gaming and the metaverse and so on. What's catching your eye? Yeah, gaming tokens in the metaverse is definitely hot topics currently, but I'm probably more obsessed with the use of cryptocurrencies for the facilitation of payments across border transactions and interbank settlements. Of course, there were some mentions of CBDCs. I'm not going to go into detail about that. What I will ever say that there's a renowned Bitcoin advocate, uh, tech entrepreneur and author called Andreas Antonopoulos. um, And he always says that you need to assess a blockchain by the acronym of Ripcord to assess whether the technology is, is blockchain in its true sense or just another ledger. And of course, the acronym of Ripcord stands for Revolutionary Immutable Public Collaborative Open resistant to censorship and decentralized. Now, if you apply that acronym to CBDCs, you can make your own mind up in terms of of whether that's uh, blockchain technology or not. Of course, the other hype was around non-fungible tokens, which was also fantastic to see as they're paving the way for the tokenization of real-world assets, which I believe is the end game of what we're trying to achieve here. Now, most of us played with Lego when we were kids or played card games like Rummy, but doesn't pay the bills today. It did, however, help our minds develop and help us think in a certain way. Uh, and, and the same applies to cryptocurrencies and byproducts of cryptocurrencies such as NFTs and blockchain technology. It teaches us about the technology and assists us to understand the fundamentals so we're able to apply uh, blockchain technology and cryptocurrency and other facets of our lives. Vihan Olafia, we're going to leave it there. Vihan is the digital asset lead and partner at Mazars, just fresh back from the Miami Bitcoin conference and talking about some of the discussions that were held there. Fascinating stuff. Vihan, we look forward to having you back on again. We're certainly looking forward to some developments this year on the regulatory front, and I, I want to stay in touch with you on that. Perfect. Thanks so much, Green. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.